When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You are listening to Tech Time with Summer's F1, presented by Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and this episode is called Shell Game, and I'm joined today by the hardest working man in Tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, assistant technical editor at Motorsport.com, the man with a plan from Techie Stan, and known to all the cool kids onto Intertubes as Summers F1. How's it going today, Summers? It is going fantastic, Matt. Thank you very much. Yourself? It's going great. You know, I'm really excited. We haven't had the chance to chat properly since we briefly met for karting. That's true. We did shoot the breeze, though, over a couple of beers, so that's always a good thing to do. Yes. Well, you know, as always, I'm trying to keep the show short. I'm afraid, however, it might turn out a bit like our chat, done at 4 a.m. and writing the tab off to Spanner's room number. Oops, don't tell him that, please. Speaking of Spanners, I need to remind everyone we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. So, Summers, you've had some big, exciting Formula One adventures, and I have to admit, you did not invite me on those, but you actually went to two races. You went to Spa and you went to Monza. So I thought maybe we could start by talking a little bit about that. Spa was up first. And so I just, as a fan of the sport, I mean, I know you're an expert as well, but wherever you are in your Formula One journey, you're always kind of a fan too. But as a fan, how did you find Spa? What did you think of the experience there? Well, to be honest, as you say, Matt, we're all fans of the sport, whether we're involved in it to the level that I am or beyond. Uh, we, We are just purely fans of the sport. And to be honest, this was a really good trip in that respect because it allowed me not to do too much work and actually focus on some of the things that I wanted to do. Uh, I've been wanting to go to Spa for a number of years. Um, So when the opportunity arose to do this road trip, which I went out in the camper van, uh, it was a fantastic trip around Europe. I did 2,000 odd miles uh, between uh, the two races and some stuff in between. And um, yeah, I mean, 
obviously it's very different doing things as a fan. Uh, the access was particularly good at both events on the Thursday. So we got the pit lane walks, etc. And then obviously, you know, at the races, you've got to go out there, find your place at the track where you want to sit and what kind of view you've got. Uh, and obviously not being to spa before, that was a bit of a, a strange one. You have to find out where, where you're going to go. And I spent the whole day walking around there on the Friday. Um, uh, but Monza, I've been several times there before. So it was a case of just really settling in once I got to Monza uh, and, and getting down to, to where I wanted to go. Okay, so you, you did actually get into the pit lane then. And on Thursday, which I think, um, based on my Formula E experience, a lot of times that day is kind of the best day to be in the pit lane because they have just lots of everything sitting out everywhere. What did you notice this time through the pit lane? Was it any different? Uh, anything strike you as odd or funny or, you know, uh, just grab your attention for any reason? Bright, shiny object? <laughs> well, there's lots of bright, shiny objects to, that catch my attention in the pit lane. But as I say, the, on a Thursday, uh, when you go as general admission as I did, um, you, you do get what's called a pit lane walk. So that's the opportunity for fans to go out into the pit lane and just walk through the pit lane and see the cars as they're being constructed and you know, practice pit stops, all that sort of stuff. So it's quite exciting for a fan that perhaps doesn't normally get quite close to the action to be able to see those those things close up. Um, obviously for myself, I was armed with my big uh, lens and, and trying to grab pictures into the, the garage themselves. And I've got plenty of pictures. Um, obviously I put those up on, on my website. So if you did miss out on that, then there's the opportunity to go back and have a look at those. I think during the pit lane uh, walks, I probably took about 500 pictures at each, uh, just purely just, trying to find as much technical detail as I possibly could. Um, obviously, the teams are trying to hide as much as they can in the pit lane. But, you know, for somebody like myself that is looking for specific details, it's quite easy to to wait on the sidelines until something just becomes a little bit more uncovered uh, and take the shot you need. You know, there's a certain occasions where a mechanic might be stood right in front of something, but he can't stay there for the, for the next hour whilst the, the pit lane walks on. So there's always that opportunity to be able to snap that picture that you're looking for. Yeah. And you also have the advantage that they don't know that's what you're up to. As far as they know, you're just another fan with no knowledge whatsoever. So you're kind of undercover. I bet you could even make small talk with them and get some information out if you were particularly clever. Well, I did meet up with a few of the guys that uh, I know during those pit lane walks and bumped into Giorgio, obviously, um, during the pit lane walk in Belgium. And our first sort of conversation was, is there anything new? Uh, what have you spotted? Because at that point in the day, I hadn't really had any contact with the internet, so I didn't know what had been going on. Uh, Giorgio's first response to me is, and this is something that was brought up in another conversation about the fact that we tend to see things that even perhaps some of the team members don't pick up on. Um, and Giorgio basically said to me, I've not seen a nose come out for Force India, sorry, Racing Point, um, which means that they've probably got a new one coming. Now, to most people, if they didn't see a nose outside the garage, it wouldn't mean anything. But to somebody like Giorgio, that is a cue to say that there is something new turning up. And as we know, uh, Racing Point did have a new nose appear for that race. All right. So it must have been amazing to be a uh, fly on the wall with you in the pit lane. Um, 
And as you said, you've been to Monza before, but uh, Ferrari winning in Monza, that must have been quite the party. Yeah, it certainly was, Matt. And you could kind of feel the viable weekend around Ferrari because what had happened at Spa. And these two races together, you kind of had that impression that Ferrari were going to be there or thereabouts anyway because of the way that their car is suited towards that style of track. So, yeah, it was a massive uh, weekend for Ferrari. And I managed to get in underneath the podium as well, which, as you've probably seen from the TV, you know, that experience on, it own, on its own is worth the, the trip. You know, it, it was, I mean, I, I'm not a Ferrari fan. I, as, as most people know, I don't support one particular team anyway. But to be there, it was just mind-blowing, the, the kind of support that, that Ferrari have and the passion that was there on the day underneath that podium was, was magnificent. Yeah, and I'm sure no one was complaining about the uh, flags or anything like that. No, not at all. All right. So I have to ask you this question now in my role as annoying host. But if there could be only one, if you could only go to one for our listeners, which one would you pick and why? Ace of Sparring and Yeah, Monza. because I'm assuming most of our listeners, if they're going to go to one, that's probably it. Yeah, I mean, to, to be fair, they both have... The, their own qualities about them and certainly in spa you have to think about the max verstappen effects you know that really magnified the event there people out in the orange and uh, the fandom for, for max verstappen in belgium uh, at the spa race is, is sublime um, but i would have to say that having been to monza a few times I don't think there's anywhere else like it on the calendar, full stop. It is a very great race to go to. Um, the circuit and the uh, – it's just got a whole vibe to it. That You know, it's a little – it feels like it's a little bit older. Um, you know, it's, you can feel that it's a classic and that things permeate that event. It, it, it is really just part of Formula One in, in my eyes. So, yeah, if you're going to go to one of them, personally, it would be to, to head out to Monza. All right. Well, thanks for uh, making the tough choice for us there. Uh, let's move on and let's talk about the Scuderia success because they came back, they saw, they conquered. The new aero package didn't really look on its surface to be a, a, a B-spec kind of a car. And yet suddenly they're fastest over one lap, no matter where they are. They've closed up in the corners. So what has happened here? How have they pulled off this uh, particular trick? Well, I think there's several facets to it, as as we always talk about. But I think, firstly, you've got the uh, the advantage that they've carried over from the previous two races. You know, just from a, a team morale point of view, both Spa and Monza kind of gave them the lift that they needed. But then when they arrived at a high downfall circuit and we all expected them to struggle once more, they arrived with a new package of updates. And I think the biggest difference or, or shifting point for them was the fact that they've now got this um, scooped sol solution under the nose, the, the cape that we've seen Mercedes run since 2017. And most of the grid now actually have that solution as well. What I think we've seen is Ferrari moving the centre of pressure forward, and that is them being able to basically generate more downforce on the front axle. That in turn obviously allows them to use the tyres in a different way, which, as you know, Matt, is one of our favourite topics. Uh, but it is a big 
chunk of performance that can be gained if you can operate the tyres in a certain way. And I think we've seen that since Singapore at the following few races as well, where we may have expected Ferrari to maybe have slipped back a little bit in relation to Mercedes, but they, they've still stayed quite well within the, the scope of, of, of the Silver Arrows. Yeah, I, it is surprising that uh, such a relatively small-looking update, I mean, it doesn't look like the Cape would add a lot of downforce, being where it is, but it must be at a very sensitive area of the car then, I'm guessing. Yeah, well, it just shifts everything forward uh, in terms of the aero side of things. So you're putting more load on the front axle itself. So you, you're generating more temperature in the tyres. Uh, as I say, it's having a, a, a massive effect on everything, not just aerodynamically, but it's having an effect on the behaviour of the car in general. And so I think that's perhaps more important than just saying, well, yeah, it looks like a minor update, which it, it is in some respects, but it's changed the overall behavior of the car uh, to the point where it's made it a much easier car to drive all right the proverbial straw then um and let's talk about fuel because i've heard that they got an updated fuel as well um but it's kind of weird because am i wrong ferrari the engine they're running now the power unit they're running now isn't one that they're sharing with their customers but i thought the regulations required that to be the case so so could you unpack that a little bit for us Okay, so as we know and we've gathered since the hybrid era began, fuel and lubricants are a massive, massive area of development because they control the way that the power unit can be operated, not only through qualifying but also in the race. On top of that, just to mention what you have about the Ferrari teams that aren't running the Ferrari latest Ferrari power unit. Now, they have to have it available to them if they want to take it but they don't have to run it. It's an optional thing. So if Alfa Romeo or Haas said to Ferrari, well, we want this brand new specification power unit, they would have to be given it. But they don't necessarily have to run it if they're not in requirement of it. Now, that means that Ferrari may be saying to those two teams, well, this might not actually be good for you because you can't operate it under a certain set of parameters. And they may be thinking, well, we don't want to run it then. Same goes with the fuel and all sorts of things. But um, they don't have to have the power unit is the, is the simple answer to that question. All right. Well, I can I can certainly live with that. Uh, let's talk about some other things. There have been some aspersions cast, if we're going to be polite, uh, by Mercedes, Red Bull, and perhaps other competitors as well, as to exactly how Ferrari have achieved it. And now this isn't unusual. I mean, we certainly saw their ERS um, solution last year being investigated and declared legal by the FIA. But specifically, we've seen rumors uh, not only about the ERS again this year, apparently a different thing that I, I don't know anything other than that about, but specifically about Ferrari being clever with their use of the intercooler. So what are they getting at? And in your opinion, uh, as best you can tell from the outside evidence we currently have, are they really breaking the rules here? Are they bending the rules or have they just found that loophole that the other teams wish they had? I think predominantly it's more of the latter. It's that the teams want to do what Ferrari are doing, can't quite understand how they're pulling it off, have a very good idea of what they are doing, uh, but just can't get there. Now, the biggest problem in that respect is the fact that the process behind 
uh, the technical side of things has altered since Charlie Whiting's passing. Uh, the technical directives that used to be a, a staple of the sport, let's say, in order to find out what your opposition were doing, uh, put the feelers out there to try to get an understanding of, of what your opposition are doing to, to get that advantage. It's kind of, it's not gone away, but it's not as powerful as it once was. It would appear that uh, the protest side of things is something that uh, the current uh, race director and the FIA are looking at using instead. So that kind of puts it in a realm whereby they can no longer feel out what's going on with their opposition. Uh, technical directive used to be a case of, well, we think we know what we're doing, so we'll just prod that area, we'll ask about something, and we'll see what comes back from Charlie Whiting about that particular area and that might give us some more answers as feedback but it obviously has sort of gone away now uh, and it makes it more difficult for the teams to evaluate exactly where these advantages are coming from right so essentially a team would be like uh, could you clarify please for me if i was going to run a device like a secondary battery um would that violate in your opinion uh, this or that regulation, and then you would get an answer back, or you could query, I think my competitor is doing this, uh, this is an area of interest for us, do you think it violates the rules before we spend, basically before we spend any money on it? Is that what you're saying? That That's essentially how the technical directives used to work, yeah. Basically, the, the, the teams would send in a request of information from to the FIA, of which Charlie Whiting would issue a technical directive now more often than not those type technical directives were based around a team fishing on another team they would basically be sending out their line to say well we think they're doing this but we can't quite be sure so if we just fish out there with our our, our line for long enough we might get the answer we're looking for and as you say it comes down to resource at the end of the day because the teams can only follow so many di directions at uh, throughout a season. So those directives kind of help them to understand where they should be pushing their resources. Uh, so the, this new system that the FIA are kind of falling under is impeding the teams in, in some respects in terms of, of the technical directives. Now, I have thought of a secondary question I want to get back to in a minute, but is that intentional on the part of the FIA to either close up the racing or to make the contest, what, more fair somehow? I mean, what's the thinking behind this, uh, to your understanding? Uh, again, I think it's more of a case of the fallout from losing Charlie. So we, with no warning, basically. There, there was no sort of catch-all way of dealing with a situation like this. So there's always going to be a period in which by things kind of happen a certain way and, and the teams feel their way into a new solution as do the FIA. And I think some of them may have taken advantage of that in some respects. And I think we've seen that in, in a sporting context as well in the way some of the rules perhaps are being changed or used in a different way than Charlie ever envisaged. So, you know, I, I think there's, there's a bit of breathing room uh, in terms of the way that the teams and the FIA react to one another now. Uh, and perhaps it's just a case of everybody getting used to a new relationship uh, and the way that both can 
work with one another to get what they want. All right. Well, fair enough. You mentioned teams and resource and pursuing things. Uh, it occurs to me, you said that almost every team was running a sort of Mercedes-style cape, and Ferrari were one of the last to come to it. Do you know why that was? I mean, was it a question of resource? Did they just didn't think it was going to work for their design? Or is there some other reason they would have simply not messed around with it until then? I think it's just purely down to the fact that they had a very uh, simple philosophy for this year in terms of the way that they wanted their chassis to operate. And that was to try to be the most efficient on the grid. And we are, we've already seen that at tracks where uh, the, the drag is a massive penalty uh, and they came back to the forefront. So by adding the cape on, they have added some drag, let's say, but in doing so, they perhaps added front end downforce, which was their Achilles heel. So, I think it was more of a case of we trying of them trying to find a solution that fit what they were were looking for right now. Uh, I don't think it's their ultimate solution, and I think we might perhaps may see something different from them for next season. But I think as they were investigating 2020 and resolving the issues that they perhaps have with this chassis this year, they stumbled across this as a short term solution to be able to bring them back into the fight. All right. That's good. All right. One more question on Ferrari, and it involves Mercedes for everybody who's a Mercedes fan, which is namely, we've seen Ferrari just look, well, sublime and qualifying. Uh, but in the race, it seems that Mercedes still has the lock on race pace. Uh, how long do you think it might be before Ferrari close that gap? And I mean, just if we take for Suzuka, for example, we saw a Ferrari that was faster uh, but when it was behind a Mercedes, it definitely wasn't. But we saw a faster Mercedes unable to get by that Ferrari. So is this going to come down to tires? I mean, please just tell me it's going to come down to tires. You'd love that, wouldn't you, Matt? Uh, well, tires are clearly uh, a factor uh, amongst the, uh, a plethora of other things. But for me, I think the one thing that people seem to have forgotten about is the uh, the fact that Mercedes are perhaps not running at full tilt due to reliability. Uh, they're, they're still not running their power unit uh, from their last update at the, at the maximum amount because of, of the fact that, that they've got some reliability issues hiding behind the branches, as they not only found out on, in their own chassis, but obviously with the customer teams as well. Uh, so I think that certainly in qualifying is in the back of their mind. And they know that they don't need to qualify on pole position to be able to win a race. Unfortunately, Ferrari are exceptionally good at throwing things away. So even if they do get on pole uh, or have a front row lockout uh, during qualifying, it's quite easy for, for them to trip over themselves, let's say, uh, and lose a result. So I think Mercedes are, are playing the long game in some, ter- in some respects because they know that they'd already got enough points to win the Constructors' Championship and the Drivers' Championship. So, you know, the, the pressure is off in some respects. They had plenty of races to, to get, get it done. So there's no need for them to overly push uh, their components to the point whereby they're, they're just giving their, their drivers maximum power all the time. But I do think during the races sometimes we do see them get give their drivers the tools to be able to uh, overtake or make the right strategy calls, etc. But... At the end of the day, we see mistakes from both teams. Both Mercedes and Ferrari have made mistakes in the last four to five races uh, from a strategy point of view and from just a general running point of view. 
Yeah, fair enough. Um, let's go ahead and talk about Red Bull in the section I like to call Horseshoes, Hand Grenades, and Honda. And that's because close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, and certainly not in Formula One, especially if you want to get on the podium at your home Grand Prix. This did not happen. But we saw a claim from Michael Schmidt uh, from Automoto und Sport. And yes, you may take a drink. Now, if you're playing the game at home, take a drink. That the Honda power unit is rated to be within two-tenths of a second of the Mercedes. And I'm just going to ask the question after watching Suzuka, is that really the case? Is that where everyone's got it pegged? And if so, do you think that is correct? Um, what is it that Brad always says? Sometimes something along those lines. You know, it's it, 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 it's one of those things where it's it, it, it's not easy to peg. You can't just say they're two, within two-tenths of Mercedes. They're within two-tenths of Mercedes in qualifying. And they're within two-tenths of Mercedes during a race. Uh, I, I, I think... You know, it's it's an arbitrary number to to pick out the air and say that's how close they are. Uh, and for me, at least, I know that Honda have made huge strides, massive strides. I mean, look at the reliability that they've got, let alone the the uh, energy deployment uh, and uh, the the power unit uh, ability that they've got this year is far beyond what we've seen from them in the past. But I don't think they're as close as to Mercedes as Michael's perhaps saying they are and certainly not in qualifying trim Uh, and it comes down to a number of factors again and predominantly one of those will be the integration of that power unit into the Red Bull chassis and perhaps some of the issues that the team are having or have had over the course of this year is the fact that they didn't really think that Honda would be able to bring what they've brought to the, the, the table. Well, now that's an interesting twist. So they didn't think they'd be as far along as they actually got. Uh, Toby uh, from our Slack chat has asked, what's going on with Red Bull? I've read they had to use a Baku spec rear wing because they weren't able to balance the car otherwise. If that's true, what exactly is wrong with their front end? If not, why are they now clearly behind Ferrari and Mercedes? Do you have any insight on that? Well, again, I think that really stickly comes back to the discussion we're having about Ferrari and balancing the car to suit the the characteristics of this new generation of regulations. So um, you also have to think that they're trying to balance the car versus the power unit performance. So if the power unit now is providing more power, but technically you can't reach VMAX at a higher rate because you haven't you, you are loading on too much wing, well, the option's there to reduce the amount of wing. So as Toby says, perhaps running a Baku spec rear wing would allow them to be able to increase their straight line speed and it's a balancing act especially for a team like Red Bull that are slightly adrift of the other two they have to make compromises in their setup in order to be able to drag themselves closer to the to the other pair and obviously if they have done what we've just mentioned and had issues with trying to align the chassis to the power unit from the start of the season uh, then you are in a situation where you have to dial things out one way or another uh, and for Red Bull, that's always been down to let's take wing off, you know, let's reduce drag because their chassis from uh, a, a diffuser point of view has always been very powerful. So that means then that you can take wing off uh, and reduce the drag and, and, and still benefit from, from a decent cornering speed. So uh, as I say, I think with Red Bull this season, it's more of a case of 
trying to meet that expectation as to where they've got to with the the partner with partnership with Honda and look at where they may actually go for 2020 because I think they may be able to drag themselves closer to the battle for next year. Well, that would be certainly uh, welcome news to everybody to have a third team really mixing it up on a regular basis. Uh, we've seen Max Verstappen have issues uh, with his power unit. It's never a problem, never a problem like, oh, it blows up, but it's always a problem. He's give me more power, give me more power. I- is that a regeneration thing or is that is there something else going on there? Can the Honda just not quite recapture as much energy as it needs yet relative to the Ferrari and Mercedes over the course of a lap? Well, there'll, there'll clearly be different deployment strategies from each of the teams, uh, regeneration and deployment. Um, and Red Bull will firmly sit at a different level in terms of where they are compared to Mercedes and Ferrari in, in respect. So, yes, there will be some of that in terms of, of the power. But when Max is saying he wants more power, that to me that is a signal that he's looking for more from the power unit in general. So he, he's perhaps looking for another mode. Uh, he's looking for more fuel, um, a better mixture, etc. cetera, um, because at that stage in the race, he feels he can make progress with more power. And that's the fight that you're always having against a driver from a strategy point of view, because the driver always wants to keep going quicker. But to meet to that expectation compared to where they are on the tires and where their strategy aligns with other people on the circuit, you know, Max can see something from out of his visor, but he can't see where everybody else is on the circuit. So, you know, it's a game of cat and mouse between, between him and the pit wall as to how they manage the race, you know, because at the end of the day, you don't want to fall inside somebody else's pit window because you're too busy trying to chase somebody in front of you. You have to play the long game in terms of strategy in order that, you know, you, you get a, a better race all, all, all round. Right. You mentioned new fuels and, and we've seen that um, there is a new fuel for Red Bull. Exxon is very proud of this. They supposedly are using elements that have never been used in Formula One before. So clearly you must know exactly what they are and what kind of a benefit they provide, right? Yeah, of course, Matt, because, you know, when you had that conversation about batteries uh, in the Formula E paddock, they told you everything about them, didn't they? Uh, no, no, no. They they just looked at me like, why would you ask me that question? Because you know I can't answer it. Yes, and I would get exactly the same response if I asked somebody from Mobile One that exact question. Uh, but, yeah, apparently, you know, they've got some new super-duper fuel. Uh, it's all to do with knock resistance, I would imagine, uh, in terms of being able to get the best uh, bang for their buck out of the fuel. Uh, they're all playing around with these ludicrously uh, expensive chemicals uh, and fuel mixtures and lubricants uh, these days in order to get better thermal efficiency, more miles to the gallon, and obviously more more power when they need it. So, yeah, they're, they're all messing around with it. But we do have to remember that they are limited to how many fuel mixtures they can use in a season as well. So they do have to stagger these uh, fuel updates out throughout the season to coincide with new power unit drops as well. Otherwise, it w- what would be the point? Because they have to work extensively with the manufacturers, um, being the, the, the power unit manufacturers, that is, in order to get the best possible solution from both the fuel and the power unit. Now, there is a video on Mercedes um, 
YouTube channel at the moment that I would suggest people watching in that respect because they talk in there about the way in which that they work with Petronas uh, to build lubricants uh, for their gearbox, etc. So, yeah, that would be worth a watch. All right. Now, also correct me if I'm wrong, but are they not limited to basically consumer-grade fuels? So they can't go out and find some element that there's only 10 grams of in the world. It has to be basically the equivalent of a commercially available product, yeah? Yes, but there's also obviously chemical mixtures within those compounds that would be advantageous for engines that run at operating conditions that can't be run in road cars. So, you know, the, the mixture level is completely different to a road car to a, to what we see in Formula One. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, there is a harmony between what you see and the biggest reason we, we're in this situation is because of what happened back in the 80s. I mean, look at the rocket fuel that they're using in the BMW engines, the Tauline and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, they, they have to meter, the FIA have to say, look, this is what the fuel must consist of. But they don't necessarily hold them back in saying, well, you can only have X or Y. Um, you know, it's, it is still quite open to interpretation. All right, fair enough. Because I mean, I think it was what benzene and, like you said, toluene, some really, really horrible, nasty substances that had a great deal of energy density and made it for amazing fuels when they weren't busy catching everything on fire and blowing up. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Let's move on to the section that I like to call executive fiat because FIA uh, we talked about the Ferrari 
uh, rules and the way that protests have been changed now that Charlie Whiting is gone. Um, but we have a massive technical protest from the uh, Racing Point team. Sorry, it took me a minute to think of the right name for them now. And uh, call them Force India, Matt. Just call uh, them Force yeah, India. I know, but but I can't because if I call them Force India, then I have to call Toro Rosso Alphatari next year, and that's really just that's just too far as far as I'm concerned. Two alphas on a grid. What is going on? Yes, I know. Really? Who, who thought that was a good idea? I, I, I don't know. And you know what? For the first time in my life, perhaps, I don't even want to know. Uh, Stephen Armstrong asked the question, overall thoughts on Renault's illegal automatic brake bias adjustment system. I know there were some discussions in the Slack group earlier relating to the semantics of the wording as specifically preset as in maybe if the driver pushes the button after the start, then technically it's all legal. And he wants to know if you think that's the loophole. And if so, are they going to get away with it or or are they going to get nailed? And if not, uh, personally, with 12 pages of supporting documentation, I'm surprised we haven't heard anything else from anyone else as to what exactly is going on. We had a good argument as to whether it was corner to corner or over uh, stint to help with tire wear, for example. Be curious to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, well, there's lots of different reasons and and what for's as to why you would want to try and pursue a, a solution such as this. But I think the biggest thing here is is that Racing Point are taking a look at it and suggesting that if we don't stop Renault right now, where's this heading? You know, if they if they are looking at a solution some with with these kind of parameters. Um, there is potential to keep pushing that scope further forward. Now, the other problem that you may have in that respect is that the Mercedes power unit and brake bias system and fly-by-wire and all of the associated gizmos that uh, deal with that scenario may not be able to support what it is that Renault are looking to do as well. We've been here when we had off-throttle blowing, cold throttle blowing, and you know all the exhaust blowing diffusers, et cetera, where Mercedes couldn't do what the Renault power unit could do at the time. Uh, so you, know, you have to wonder into a, a, a situation and think, well, is this just a case of trying to stop somebody doing something because, before it becomes a problem and a system that they can't implement very quickly? And as we've already discussed, without the technical directives working as they have before, the option seems to be, let's protest it. But the other problem that we have there is that a protest costs money. So had this been Force India that we were talking about, I don't think this would have happened because Force India could never afford to protest anything. They had to wait until the likes of Mercedes got involved and they wanted to bring something forward. Um, so it's an interesting one, really, as to who is drive, who's the driving force behind it and why. So uh, I was having the thought that you seem to be uh, dancing around that perhaps uh, some team that's not named Racing Point but rhymes with, oh, I don't know, Go Sadies might actually be more interested in this and and uh it's only down to having the money and 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 that does bring up an interesting point in terms of uh the technical regulations with clarifications it seems like the FAA would have their finger on the pulse of what's happening a lot more than with protests because protests cost money and take time 
Yeah, but the FIA get a chunk of money from from that situation. They don't get a chunk of money from a technical directive. You know, somebody has to to respond to those technical directives, and there's a cost element to having somebody do that. But um, when it comes to a protest, which must happen at a race weekend, the the team will pay the FIA for the protest. So there's a there's a, a financial element to it. Uh, at which point, then obviously we we have to have an investigation, and that's why a twelve page document from Racing Point is quite important in giving the meat to put on the bones of, of the situation. I mean, I'd love to see this 12-page document. I haven't as of yet, um, but it would be quite an impressive thing to read, I would have thought. Yeah, you would think so. So uh, let me back up a little bit and just make sure for myself, I, I operate under the assumption I know what a brake bias adjustment is, and it's simply a dial, usually a dial, and all you're doing is is say your brakes are set 55% to the front, 45% to the rear in terms of slowing the car and so you might as time goes on start to have overheating on your front brakes because you're using them too much and so then you would simply turn that dial to 53 or 52 or 51 or whatever your race engineer suggests would keep your brakes from uh, catching on fire like they might occasionally do in canada so do i have that much of it right at least you do have that much of it right, Matt, yes. But I think what we can lend here from your experience with Formula E is what perhaps is being talked about in terms of Renault because what we have to remember is that we have two overlying systems that, that sit on top of one another. So we have the fly-by-wire brake braking system uh, which controls the rear brakes uh, and the proportion from front to rear, as you've just mentioned. So you distribute front to rear how much braking you want to do from the mechanical braking system. But on top of that, we also have the MGUK recovering energy. So that is doing some rearward braking. Now, what the uh, the brake-by-wire system will do is proportionately work out which of the, which of the systems uh, needs to be operational to be able to get that distribution. So if you want 60% of braking at the front, but you're also harvesting energy from the MG, MGUK on the crankshaft, you would then have less mechanical braking at the rear axle to compensate for the MGUK doing some braking as well. Now, we have to remember that there's energy going into the battery at every point and you know from what your experience is in formula e that obviously at a certain point in the race you have an issue with how much energy density and and whatnot that can go in and out of the battery now this to me is the loophole that we're working around it's the difference between what's going on with the battery the mguk and the mechanical braking side of things so if there is an automatic brake bias adjustment going on it's all to do with how much energy is going back into the system, in my opinion, without seeing the protest that's gone on. Okay, so now if I'm understanding you, they're essentially... Okay, all right, now if I'm understanding you... Okay, I'm not understanding you. I think I'm sort of beginning to grasp it. So it would be something like they're harvesting, but not using the energy. They're instead using it as a form of braking to prolong tire life, to prolong brake life, to prolong the stent, or just simply even perhaps to control tire temperature? Yeah, there is some of that that could perhaps go on. But as, as you know, when you, when you used to watch a Formula E race when there was a two-car situation, towards the end of a stint, 
the teams did less and less regen because they couldn't, because the battery couldn't absorb that energy. And, and that's essentially what I think we're seeing here with, with the Renault system. They're trying to automate something that the drivers were having prob- a problem with in terms of being able to control how much of the assistance was required between the energy that was going back into the energy recovery system and how much was happening at the rear brakes with the, the, the mechanical braking system. Okay, that time I got it a lot better. Thanks for, thanks for the redirect. Uh, what is interesting to me about that uh, from Formula E, my experience there, is that almost always the regen being limited is due to thermal throttling of the battery. So that would also intimate that perhaps they are still struggling to, um, to cool the battery. In other words, their cooling may not be up to snuff relative to some of the teams that they are chasing with other power units. Would you think that might be the case as well? Yeah, I would I would suggest so, yes. And we have to remember that a team like Renault uh, will be looking perhaps at taking penalties at some point that other teams may have already taken. And this can all then get very complicated in terms of where their drivers finish and how many points they accrue during a race. So I think what you have to remember is that Racing Point have chosen to release this protest at a very specific point as well. Is this not the first time that Renault have scored good points in some time yeah yeah it, it, it is this is a good result for them first good result in a while but they, there are places where they've scored um more points but yeah but not but but not in recent history and no. perhaps racing points have had this on the chart for a, for a few races they've held off and they've waited until Renault have scored a decent chunk of points that can be taken away from them basically they'll have those points taken away from them and then at that point if the protest stands because they've had the points taken away, they then won't be able to use the trick that they have been using. So, you know, it's a two for one, really. If they do manage to pull it off, uh, they'll not only take the points away that they scored at the last race, but they'll also pre- prevent them from scoring them again. Uh, well, now now we have a whole new thing to look forward to in next year's races, if this is the way things continue going with the protest. I did have one more question about this. Are we seeing, um, are we beginning to see the end, do you think, of Renault's participation, except for perhaps as someone supplying power units? Because they're the only team left. Uh, We've heard rumors that they might be bought out. Uh, Anything cross your desk regarding that? I think Renault have been on weak footing for a while, to be perfectly honest. Uh, They're now not going to be supplying uh, McLaren from 2021 as well, which obviously means that... Uh, they'll only be supplying themselves. And that puts a huge dent into their costs. You know, that they were already running realistically, you know, just one customer team, which is putting them on, on the limit in terms of the kind of expenditure that they would like to have. So I, I do see them on, on, on shaky ground unless they can pick up another customer. And they are few and far between because we know that Williams have just signed another extended deal with uh, Mercedes. And then, you know, perhaps Racing Point have just cut their nose off to spite their face with Renault because if they wanted to do some kind of power unit deal with them, they, they've just fell, fallen foul of that. So that only really leaves them to chase Haas uh, or any new teams that may 
uh, come up and into the sport. And I don't really see anybody that would have that potential at this stage either, uh, because the criteria to come into Formula One is, is drastic. Uh, and unless you're a team like Haas that can kind of do certain things like Haas did to get into the sport, then you know I just don't see a new team coming up anytime soon. Oh, you don't have to be shy about that. There was a whole massive stewards decision at the end of the Abu Dhabi race about exactly what they did with Ferrari to be able to be up and running and and competitive. And you're right. It was a loophole. They took advantage of it. And they had the financing to take advantage of it. And they had a single owner who could simply make that decision and not an entire corporation that you'd have to go through. So it is unlikely, I think, uh, to find anyone else coming in at that level, unless they're uh, multinational, unless Ford shows up or some other manufacturer decides they want to go play in that ballpark. But if they do, then they're going to want to use their own power plant and not somebody else's. Let's talk about my favorite subject, tires. Let's go to the section I'm going to call Big Wheels Keep On Turning because we've had the test of the 18-inch tires. Uh, but we've also, more importantly, had the test of next year's tires, the 2019-2020 tires. Um, and there was a problem with them, as I understand it. They don't fit this year's cars exactly. Yeah, it's all to do with the way in which that the sidewall uh, deflects, basically. And I think this may be a trouble that we've seen before. Uh, in terms of 2013, if we remember the tyre trouble from 2013 uh, and the mid-season tyre swap, uh, uh, Pirelli designed a tyre that was, let's say, a little bit volatile in terms of the way that it moved around. Now, certain teams absolutely hated that, uh, not mentioning Red Bull at all here. And that meant that the rear tyre wake really impinged on the diffuser. And, and Red Bull hated it. They absolutely hated it because obviously it was robbing them of underfloored performance. Now, if the tyres are moving around laterally at the rear of the car, which is what we're suggesting from uh, the information that came out that there was had to be made cutouts in the side of the floor, then that is going to be a problem in terms of understanding how to create downforce at the rear of the car. And of course, that generally means the teams that have more downforce will win the race and we all know who those teams are because they're at the front of the grid so it will not really change anything in the short term because the pecking order technically will not be shifted around too much but it is an interesting factor that we must keep an eye on for next season because it will change the way in which teams have to design their floors and the diffuser to compensate for the volatile sidewalls. All right. Now, as a follow-up to that, uh, aren't all the teams due to test these tires at Circuit of the Americas? And if so, what are they going to do? Are they just going to cut holes in their regular race cars to make this test happen? Uh, it seems like a kind of a bad idea if you've got a race as well. What I'd probably suggest there is, is if I was uh, in running the team at that particular point, I'd have a floor that I could make cutouts in um, standing by. But then... You know, carrying around test items is not always the best solution. But at the end of the day, you want that data as well. So you don't want to just say, I'm not going to partake in the tyre test because I can't be bothered to cut my car up. 
uh, you, you need that information and obviously Pirelli need that information as well. So it's in everybody's best interest that people turn up and, and, and participate in the manner that you would expect them to. But on the other hand, obviously, we don't want to see a situation where we see damage caused to cars by deflecting tyres either. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. All right. Uh, going along with that, a double barge board has asked, are we going to see a shift? Because now we're talking about the 2021 tires, which are the 18 inchers with the spinnies. They're actually not spinnies. They're fixed uh, for aerodynamic purposes, just like they used to be. Um, are we going to see a shift to more compliant suspension in preparation for that? And Rob Andrews followed up uh, saying, surely given the new size of the tires, they're going to have to either redesign or recalibrate the current suspension for these larger wheels with the smaller sidewalls. Yeah, okay. Well, there's a couple of things here. Firstly, the 18-inch rim um, and and tyre, I've not been a fan of for a long time because from an aesthetic point of view, uh, it just doesn't, doesn't jive properly with me personally but you know they are going in that direction so you have to live with these things um from an aerodynamic point of view i actually think it is a massive gain and uh, certainly with the ground effect car that we're going to get see in 2021 if it actually happens um because with an 18 inch side uh, 18 inch tire you are going to see a lot less deflection in the tires as that means you will not only see less tire wake at the front of the car you'll also see less tire squirt at the rear of the car and that means that you can control the aero more which means that obviously everything's a bit more compliant there's less transient situations going on so from an aero point of view the 18 inch wheel is a, is a m- massive plus from a suspension point of view the teams do have to build into the facts with their current suspension that obviously the tyres move around a lot and they do a lot of work that the suspension would otherwise do. On top of that, you have things like harmonics uh, to, to consider and you also have to consider uh, that there will be a shift next year in terms of the way that teams look at their suspension designs. I don't think you will see a massive shift, but... The interesting thing that's arose over the last few races is Mercedes because they've been testing a new front suspension setup. Now, they've been using a um, hydraulic fur damper for a long time, uh, since the Frick days, basically. And suddenly they've decided, hang on a minute, we're going to test a classic or more linear style of spring in the heave position and they've been trying something along the lines of the Belleville washers that we see Red Bull running. So Red Bull had already stepped away from the hydraulic side, not completely, but they'd gone back to a more mechanical aspect. And now I think we're starting to see that trend edge backwards. And perhaps uh, as, as the guys have said, that is purely down to the fact that teams are starting to think about the big shift for 2021. Right. Well, it makes a certain amount of sense that they would go back because you're going to have to allow for a lot more travel in all directions. Is this going to affect things like the amount of caster they can run? And they've been running sort of the uh, the offset, uh, I want to say tie rods, but that's not correct. You know what I mean? The, the push rod. The push rod solution. They've been running them offset to be able to gain advantage outside of the whatever it is, five degrees of... Um, 
steering lock that the FIA measure. Is this going to put a kibosh on some of these solutions? And are we going to see, are we going to have to go look at like old NASCAR footage now to figure out what they're going to be up to? I don't think we'll have to go back to NASCAR footage, but there will be a relearning situation where teams obviously have to think laterally about how it best suits them to to, to design their, their suspension uh, geometries. But what I will say and caveat that with is that aerodynamics always lead over the, the suspension. So the, the suspension things that we just talked about are aerodynamic solutions. There's no getting away from that factor. And, you know, the, the aggressive, more push rod on upright solution that you just mentioned is an, is an aerodynamic solution. It's not because it's better in terms of the suspension element of, of it, it's better because it lowers the ride height at the front of the car as the drivers are turning in. And so that means they get, you know, a, a better front end. So I think what we will see is the teams monitoring what will gain them more from an aerodynamic point of view, especially uh, as we're moving towards a car that is more of a spec car than we currently have, so that they will need to find margins of performance that their competitors cannot excellent let's answer some listener questions uh sam harper would like to know uh what are some of the ways the teams have converged over the season i remember at the start everyone had different front wing and barge board aero concepts but now the field's closed up a bit have some of the more radical solutions been scrapped and also ask aside from the recent controversy why has renault taken such a big step back this year okay so Firstly, the biggest point of convergence this season has been the front wing. And it was an obvious thing that would happen because uh, we came to a very big change in the regulations for the front wings. Uh, We saw unloaded and loaded outer sections on on the front wings at the start of the season. Unloaded being at the Ferrari end of the spectrum and Alfa Romeo and Mercedes and Red Bull at the loaded end of the spectrum. And all of the teams have sort of started to merge towards the middle. Uh, There's clearly uh, still a lot of different solutions out there, but we have seen some convergence in that respect. And I'd say that's the the biggest area that we've seen so far this year. In terms of the barge boards, there's still a huge amount of development work going on there because the teams haven't been reined in at all. You know, there was a bit of height taken away from them. But that was an area that they weren't really able to maximise performance from anyway, because then that would impinge on the the flow around the side pod. So uh, from a barge pod point of view, all we're getting is more and more aggression, uh, more surfaces to turn airflow, etc., and improve the, the flow under and around the car. So for me, the biggest area of convergence would be uh, the front wing. And then going on to the question about Renault, I think the biggest step back that we've seen from them this year uh, is the fact that they had to close their wind tunnel for refurbishment for a little while. And that has had quite the impact on their development schedule uh, because obviously you, you can lead up to that and then you're cutting off development for, for several weeks whilst you do refurbishment. Now a team can only run one tunnel a season so it's not like they can say, oh, well, we'll close down here, but we'll go off to the wind tunnel in Cologne at TMG and we'll use their tunnel for three weeks because that can't happen. It's it's part of the regulations now that you can only run one tunnel. So I think that's really stunted Renault's growth in terms of 
where they lie in the aerodynamic pecking because they've had to sort of close down development and then reinitiate it. Hopefully, that won't have affected them too much going into next season. And also, obviously, that will give them a benefit going into 2021 because with that refurbishment, they should gain some results further down the line. All right, uh, let's stick with Renault for a second. Stephen F. would like to know, is a Renault engine better than we think, i.e., is it on a par or better than Honda? Shall I just say flat no? <laughs> uh, it would save me the trouble of making the video cut. So why don't you? I, 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 honestly, I just don't think they are on a par with Honda anymore. Uh, for me, I, I think they're a little bit adrift. And But again, that comes down to chassis side of things. You know, You have to look at where McLaren are. You know, McLaren are in a very good position compared to where they used to be. Uh, but that is only relative to the poor performance they had when they were, you know, running with the Honda power unit. So, you know, it's apples and oranges. But for me, I still think that Honda are in a better position. All right, let's move back to tyres. Sean, tyres are flat, perhaps a dead giveaway for this question. We'd like to know, uh, do in-season trials, uh, tyre test? give teams that do them any advantage and uh, be feel free to specify like what they might take from it that wouldn't be immediately obvious to a casual viewer such as myself okay um in season tests for tires it depends on what they're testing at the end of the day whether it's something um for future reference whether it's a blind test whether they know what type of tire they are testing and you know, numerous uh, permutations. But yes, the simple answer is every time that the car is on track, it is gathering data and data is king to Formula One teams. So if you are collecting data, if even if for, you know, the, the purpose of what is supposed to be just for Pirelli, you are still, still going to learn something. And it might not actually be something that's directly colorate, if I can say it, yes to the tire that you think you are testing so let's say uh, a team were testing a 2020 tire and they were doing certain tests because of that tire they thought they would try out certain other things on their car it may unlock some performance that they didn't consider for their current car from an aerodynamic point of view from a suspension setup point of view just in general and that is a key factor, I think, for, for a lot of the teams in terms of tyre testing. You know, it, it's just good old-fashioned running on tyres. Uh, it is, is going to give you time to, to evaluate things and to get data from it. All right, let's stick with tyres. Uh, Daniel Kranich would like to know, will getting to use tyre blankets on the new 21 tyres end up being a positive or a negative for most teams? Because originally they weren't going to get to use them, and now that has been... Um, walked back a bit yeah well i think the teams have got heavily involved in that they're they're concerned about uh, the issue of cold tires on tracks and the implications that that could possibly have especially when we're talking about ride height sensitive cars going out on a set of extremely cold tires for argument's sake and not going through the correct preparation work could mean you know, bottoming out the car and turning it into a sledge and hitting a wall at quite a speed. So, you know, there's there are arguments for and against tyre blankets. But I think in a sport like Formula One that has had blankets for as long as it has had, to take them away and remove that entire process from from them would be quite harsh. Um, 
I'm quite happy to, to, to see it either way, personally. And I do see the sporting challenge behind not having tyre blankets. But from a technical point of view, I also see the advantages of having them and the strategy that's involved in the processes that go into keeping the temperatures in those blankets at the right temperature, et cetera, for you know, the, the right period of time. Yeah. Um, let's ask Rob Andrews' question, which is um, after the clattering that Chuck's front wing, that would be Charles Leclerc, for those who are interested, uh, received and almost entirely survived on Sunday, do you have any speculation as to who has the most robust, quote unquote, front wing? And given that it seems to be an issue with the new or the old or the old is new again, let them race philosophy. How do they balance that uh, with regards to the heaviness that m- more robustness much must require? And also, as a final note, as someone who's been watching a long time, uh, does it appear to you that these cars are way less fragile in terms of their pointy end bits than they used to be? Yeah, well, that is predominantly down to the new regulations for 2019. There was a lot of work going to the wording and... Uh, just the, the general builds of the front wings, knowing that they were going to be the full width of the car, there were certain parameters that were built into the regulations in order to prevent tyre damage from, from happening. So, And we've seen certain designs have to be warped back because of that. So in the early stages of the season, when teams were starting to put cutouts in the rear end of the, the, the trailing end of the uh, end plate, the FIA stepped in and said, no, I'm sorry, you can't have such a sharp point to that cutout. You have to have a, a certain um, edge to it. And obviously that is makes it less aerodynamically advantageous, and that's the reason why it was sharp in the first place. But the rules suggest that the, there must be a certain uh, radius to the corner of the wings. On top of that, there's... Uh, parameters in terms of their thickness and what their makeup is. And I think what we're seeing when we see impacts this year is the good work that went on to word those regulations and make sure that any impact that did happen didn't completely destroy the tyre that was hit so we don't get sort of punches all the time. Because uh, I think that was the fear with going back to full full width front wings was that we'd see a lot of rear-end punches where Drivers had literally just driven into the back of a car, uh, and obviously that would cause a puncture. I mean, for me, the the first time that we saw this kind of unfold was that I saw a Renault front wing almost fold over on itself uh, and and sit right back upright uh, because it had been designed in such a way that basically it was susceptible to damage. And I think that's a good thing in some respects. But obviously, as we've just mentioned, it does come to the detriment of performance. All right. Good enough, then. Uh, Nick would like to know how much carryover, given it's close to the end or closer to the end of the season, how much carryover are we really going to see from this year's car to next year's car? Quite quite a lot, to be honest, uh, just purely because we're in a very stable set of regulations so we haven't really got much more to learn. And frankly, with such a big upheaval coming for 2021, I can't see that any team will take a drastic 
aside from Williams, this is, take a drastic punt at building a very different car. Uh, because why would you? You know, at the end of the day, you're going to plow uh, a huge amount of resource into a new design that you're only going to get one year's worth of benefit out of. So I have heard that McLaren have something very different on the boards for next season. And I've seen them do this before, and it makes them fail spectacularly the year after that. So uh, I don't know what to say about a situation where you play a resource into a car that only has one year left on it. You know, at the end of the day, there isn't a huge amount of scope in terms of development to be made performance-wise to gain up to the front end of the field. You know, at the end of the day, we're going to see the likes of Red Bull, Mercedes and Ferrari play a huge amount of resource in because they have it available to them. Whereas the smaller teams do not have that resource available. So they have to be very efficient in how and where they spend that resource. Right. Well, I guess we'll have to see uh, under new management if McLaren continues its uh, standard way of doing business. Is there any chance that some of this might be looking more towards the 21 regulations? Like they think they know where they want to go. And they're just going to start with it next year to spread it out over a, a longer period of time? Or, or are they just too inchoate yet to uh, have a team uh, try and pull a trick like that? I don't think there's enough uh, between the two concepts of cars to be able to suggest that you would even attempt something like that. They're so far apart, it's not true. The, the 20, 2021 car is nothing like what we currently have. Uh, in terms of the the overall shape, the aerodynamic layout. There's just far too much to be able to shift resource and think, well, you know, I'm going to learn something in 2020 that is suddenly going to unlock, unlock a lot of performance for 2021. For me, I don't think there's that kind of advantage available. All right, excellent. Uh, last question then, and we will call this also our Mexico preview because it's a question about the upcoming race. Uh, Bill James wants to know if... Uh, Mexico has traditionally been considered a weak track for Mercedes over the last few years. Uh, but will their design approach in 2019 uh, change that, especially given that uh, he feels Ferrari's power unit advantage might be lessened due to the high altitude in Mexico? So basically, give us the rundown, uh, given the characteristics of the cars. Who do you see doing well in Mexico? Who do you see having troubles? And possibly, why do you think that? Okay, so I would suggest if I was putting money on something, my money would be edging towards Red Bull. And that is purely because of the way in which the power unit advantage swings around that particular circuit. The altitude does play a massive role. And as we've seen in the past with the Renault power unit in the Red Bull, they've been able to make a huge amount of gain at Mexico in the past. Uh, and I think they'll be able to unlock that same kind of advantage going with the Honda as well. Uh, but that obviously means that you will also see Renault make a leap forward as you would with McLaren perhaps. And we obviously do see the difference in, in the Mercedes powered cars. They can't run at the same level at that altitude it's something that befalls them around Interlagos as well. And I know that the altitude is much lower, but it is still an altitude track. So you have to suggest that the way that they actually do things from a combustion point of view with their power unit suits the profile of tracks that are at lower altitude. 
and obviously being at high altitude in Mexico and again yeah, Brazil in Interlagos, uh, you would um, you would suggest that some of the other teams or the other power unit teams would would gain an advantage over them. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that, Summers. You've been very patient as I've sat here and asked all these sorts of questions. Uh, where can people look for you on social media? What are you up to now? Okay, so as always, probably the best place to find me is on Twitter, uh, Summers F1, although I have been a little bit quieter there more than recently. And um, also, obviously, over on my website, uh, which is summersf1.co.uk. Excellent. And if you do want to take a deeper dive into these subjects, I cannot recommend highly enough going over there, clicking the links, reading the articles. You have such fantastic content. It really adds so much context to the um, act of watching a Grand Prix. And speaking of which, if you happen to miss the latest Missed Apex, our review of the Japanese Grand Prix, please do go and check it out and listen to us whenever and whenever you get the chance. As for me, I'm Matt PT 55 on the Twitters. And remember, chicks dig heels, wounds cause scars, and glory is a fungible concept under certain philosophical precepts. This has been Tech Time with Summer's F1. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 